Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen. Chaos in the U.S., uncertainty here in Canada. That describes the fallout from the U.S. presidential elections, which tonight still not fully decided. The battle between Donald Trump and Joe Biden has come down to the results in six states. Even as Joe Biden appears now to be on a path to victory, results still being counted. And today, the Trump campaign filing lawsuits demanding to have observers monitor the vote counting in Michigan and Pennsylvania. It also wants a recount in Wisconsin. Donald Trump claims the election is being stolen by the Democrats and promises to challenge the results if needed all the way to the Supreme Court. This is a fraud on the American public. This is an embarrassment to our country. We were getting ready to win this election. Frankly, we did win this election. We did win this election. So our goal now is to ensure the integrity for the good of this nation. This is a very big moment. This is a major fraud in our nation. We want the law to be used in a proper manner. So we'll be going to the U.S. Supreme Court. We want all voting to stop. Well, for his part, Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden expressed confidence that he will win the presidency and insisted all of the votes need to be counted. Every vote must be counted. No one's going to take our democracy away from us. Not now, not ever. America's come too far. America's fought too many battles. America's endured too much to ever let that happen. We, the people, will not be silenced. We, the people, will not be bullied. We, the people, will not surrender. My friends, I'm confident we'll emerge victorious. Our focus here tonight is really Canada and how the uncertain outcome in the U.S. election is playing out in this country. Today, the Prime Minister took a wait-and-see attitude. First, I want to reassure Canadians that the Canadian government uh, is watching very carefully events unfold in the United States uh, as they go through their electoral processes. As always, we will uh, seek to uh, make sure that we're able to defend Canadian interests uh, and Canadians uh, as we move forward, as the Americans uh, make an important decision uh, about uh, uh, the next steps forward. Uh, We will watch. We will continue to defend Canadians. So we have a waiting game and many reasons to keep a close eye on the uncertainty in the United States as the outcome of the presidential election remains in question. Although, as the voting continues, uh, the counting continues, the path of victory for Joe Biden seems to be there. Where could this all be headed and how does Canada play that waiting game until a winner is declared? Let's bring in two guests following developments closely. Basma Momani is a professor of international affairs and the assistant vice president of international relations at the University of Waterloo. And Christopher Sands is the director of the Canada Institute at the Wilson Centre in Washington. Good to see you both. Thanks for being here. And uh, Besma, if I can, let me start with you. Um, We'll talk about Canada specifically in all of this in a moment, but what do you think are the broader international implications of this unresolved vote in the United States and the way this is all playing out and the uncertainty around it? What, What kind of implications could that be creating? 
Well, let's just say this is one of probably the most, you know, American uh, election watched uh, across the world like never before. This is really quite remarkable, as, as someone said on the New York Times piece, it's like watching the World Cup. Uh, but of course, it's, it's serious stakes at hand here. Uh, you know, this is a, an important country for global, you know, the global economic stability. And certainly if you have a continuation of a Trump presidency, which, you know, in some parts of the world is welcomed, but in other parts of the world, you know, shudder at the instability that he could bring because uh, certainly American foreign policy has been very unpredictable of late. So, yeah, the world is very much attuned to this. And I think uh, really hoping that there is at least a clear conclusion at the end of all of it. Chris Sands, what do you want to add to that? Well, I think there will be a clear conclusion. But what I would tell, especially Canadians who know the U.S. in general very well, is that the U.S. is going through a transition. It's a transition from a period where we had relative stability in the U.S. in terms of what the party stood for and, and what you could expect from them, because the baby boomers were the largest part of our, our election cohort. They were the biggest cohort in the electorate. Now millennials are the biggest cohort in the electorate, and both parties have shifted their strategies and their bases in order to try to respond to that change. And I think that's why this election wasn't as decisive as many of us were hoping for. We're still in the middle of that transition, and there's all to play for as we try to adjust to a new era in American politics. Neither of these candidates, both well over 70, are really representative of that new generation. And in the next four years, uh, even after the dust has settled in this election, one of the really interesting things will be how we see that new leadership emerging uh, in the Congress, in, in state offices, and in the, the composition of the next administration. There's, there's a lot going on, and, uh, and it's all, as Besma says, very, very important to the future, not only of the U.S., but of U.S. relationships internationally. Well, let's talk about that. Besma, let's talk about the Canada-U.S. relationship and what's at stake in this period of uncertainty. The Prime Minister is uh, sitting on the sidelines while this gets sorted out. Is there any way he gets dragged into this fight? Well, I mean, what I was always worried about is that Trump would start asking allies to basically commit to him in some way, you know, show their allegiance uh, because he takes things very personal. And of course, I mean, the right thing to do is to wait until we get that kind of certification that this is really done and not to play, you know, favorites, so to speak. Uh, but of course, Trump doesn't think that way. He often takes things, again, very personal. Politics to him is about loyalty, as he often says. And so, you know, he's going to be reaching out to allies. I, I wouldn't be surprised if he's at some point going through and, and grasping for straws, particularly if, if things continue in the momentum that they are, which is sort of a Biden victory, but slow one, um, to have other countries sort of show their, their commitment to, to, to Trump, which would put them in a very awkward position. Uh, and I can see, you know, a number of countries, uh, you know, Israel's Netanyahu, um, you could see where MBS of Saudi Arabia, um, Egypt, Sisi, I mean, number of countries out there that may be asked to basically, you know, uh, play for Team Trump, and that's not really good for any country, truly. Chris, if there is continuing turmoil and challenges to the outcome of of the vote as uh, being promised by the by the Trump side, is there a point where governments, including the Canadian government, may have to pronounce on what's happening and actually pick sides? Well, I don't think so. And I, this is a game of speculation about how the next few weeks will evolve. But I suspect what we're heading to is a version of what we've seen the last four years. For the last four years, Donald Trump has been a disruptive and highly unpredictable president, surrounded by a relatively weak political party. A Biden administration would flip that on its head. 
President Biden would be a relatively weak president surrounded by a very disruptive party. The Democratic Party has a number of factions that are impatient to see real change in policy. And President Biden, a traditional Democratic centrist, doesn't come from the part of the party that has the energy behind it. Now, I don't think uh, I don't think Canada get dragged in until January 20th when we we draw in a actually inaugurate a new president. But where this could get complicated is that just as Donald Trump was not a traditional president, I don't think he would be a very traditional ex-president either. Hmm. He believes that conspiracy theories were launched at his administration trying to undermine him from the beginning. So a Biden administration begins with two strikes against it. One, a fractious party, and two, likely Donald Trump on social media, on television, exploiting every division between Biden and his base, as well as firing up opposition among Republicans and others uh, to try to sandbag the Biden administration and prevent it from achieving really anything, right. which would be hard on a good day, but will be harder with Trump in the wings. So, Vesma, let me let me hear you on that, because at some point, if if the if if the numbers play out the way they look like they're going to play out, uh, and Joe Biden has declared the winner, but Donald Trump challenges that. Uh, how long does Justin Trudeau wait before picking up the phone or putting in a statement saying, I'd like to congratulate Joe Biden? As long as possible. It's really not in any country's leader's interest to, to weigh in on this. Um, it, it just isn't. I mean, I think on that front, uh, look, uh, you know, Biden, if he is you know, the presumed president, is going to have a very uphill battle. Um, exactly as Chris said, but I'd also add to there, he has a you know, very progressive wing in his own party. Uh, yes, many of them are young, uh, call them the Bernie bros and others um, who want a very different America. And they have a difficult uphill battle here because they also have an American or sorry, a Republican, most likely dominated Senate. And so it's going to be basically difficult to get things done. Um, they're going to push Biden to his limits. And so I don't think things are, uh, you know, as, as, as I think very much Chris noted, you know, I don't think we're going to enter a period of stability, even if Biden is the president. And also, let me not let's not forget here, Trumpism as, a, as an ideology and as a movement is very well and alive. I mean, you know, this was not a blowout uh, of this blue wave. And despite, you know, high turnout, um, there is still a lot of support for uh, Donald Trump. And what that is, is a populist nationalist narrative. Um, that sees indeed conspiracies at every turn, has enormous distrust of the elite and the deep state. Mm. Um, all of these are code words to basically, frankly, uh, disrupt uh, what we think of as liberal institutions that have made America so great. So it's a, a very rough ride ahead for the Biden presidency, if that's what happens. And if we get a rough ride ahead for the Biden presidency, uh, if, if that's what we get, a Joe Biden presidency, Chris, uh, what are the consequences uh, and implications of that for Canada? Well, I'd say one thing, almost picking up on your last question, Joe Biden is no stranger to Canada. Uh, many Canadians remember he represented the United States at the Vancouver Olympics in 2010. He's traveled to Canada. He's met Justin Trudeau. They've had opportunity to develop a relationship. So that's one reason I don't think Canada needs to rush here. It's not as though Joe Biden will take any offense. Uh, he, he'll look forward to working with Canadians at the right time. But at, this, at the same time, we have a number of files that are quite pressing. And although, you know, you always look for the chemistry between leaders, we still have to deal with the COVID pandemic. We're jointly restricting the border. That's been done on a 30-day rolling basis. How do we go from here forward on that? And then we need to revive the economy. Uh, the, we've, we've all taken a hit 
uh, we're in a recession. We need to get the economy going. And of course, what happens in the U.S. tends to have positive effects for Canada if, if there's growth here, if we can get back on track. So Canada okay. can't be indifferent to a lot of this. We really need that partnership to kick in at the appropriate time. All right. Best moment, Manny. Chris Sands, uh, always good to get uh, your, uh, your, your views on these things. And it was uh, great to hear from you tonight. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Well, if there's one thing businesses really don't like, it is uncertainty. And there's lots of that in Canada today. Uncertainty over the U.S. election results layered on top of the uncertainty caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. Perrin Beattie is the president of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, and he is with me now. Uh, Mr. Beattie, good to see you again. Thanks for taking time to speak with me. Great to be here, Peter. Let me start by getting your reaction to, to how the results have unfolded in the United States. I think you were quoted as saying it's a little bit like watching your neighbor's roof catch fire. What, what do you mean? Well, that is both both mesmerizing. You can't take your eyes away from it and horrifying in many ways as well. And that we see a society that is very deeply divided, which has major challenges in front of it and uh, where there's no clear path out at the present time. Canada is now in this waiting game to see who will lead the United States, our biggest trading partner by far. Why does that waiting game cause you so much worry? Well, what's, if you look at it from a business perspective, what business dislikes most of all is uncertainty. If you know what the rules are, if you know what the conditions are, then you can make your plans. Uh, at this point, we're on a roller coaster, and we've seen the results shifting back and forth. And uh, I think everybody's looking forward to getting getting greater certainty. What is certainly interesting here is the markets opened up in the United States. Uh, so there doesn't appear to be panic in the markets there in any way. There seems to be a feeling that that uh, that things will will work out not too badly. Give us a sense of how that when you talk about uncertainty, help uh, our viewers uh, understand a little bit more about that. Uh, tell me how that uncertainty translates in, into the uh, onto the shop floor or the or the business boardroom. How does it actually affect the business process in Canada uh, as businesses here uh, wait for some kind of uh, confirmation about where our biggest trading partners headed. Well, the sort of issue that the business is going to look at is what's going to happen with the U.S. economy and the global economy. Um, so that issues such as the management of COVID uh, are absolutely critical. Trade policy is critical. Uh, tax policy is critical. Spending policy is critical. And what business will be doing, both in the United States and in Canada, is looking at, at with the makeup of, of the presidential election and of Congress, what do we expect is going to be happening? Uh, do we expect to see a, a great deal more spending? Will taxes be going up? Will trade policy be dramatically different? At this point, and I stress that this is still early, right. uh, it looks as if what we could be looking at is uh, still a Republican-controlled Senate with possibly a, a Democratic White House and with Democratic control maintained in the House of Representatives, but not a dramatic shift to the left. And I think that should be reassuring for business that perhaps we uh, will be moving away from some of the erratic uh, behavior we've seen for the last four years, but uh, not shifting dramatically left and swinging from one extreme to the other. And still in practical terms, we could have days or weeks of this uncertainty if the battle over the results ends up in court, as uh, Mr. Trump suggesting it could. What can business do during that time? What does business do from now till there's a decision? Well, it does two things. It, it attempts to price in in advance uh, something going the wrong way. And uh, so you may see some impact if there's continued uncertainty that that uh, stocks may be going down as a consequence. We'll see. Uh, it's very hard to predict. 
But the other thing is that they'll be waiting to, to see. And, and in many instances, businesses will simply pull back until there's greater clarity and then make their investments based on uh, what they know the conditions are at the time. I guess we still have to see how it plays out. But, uh, of course, some people are worried about social chaos in the event that Mr. Trump doesn't accept the results. Uh, uh, some stores are boarded up in some U.S. cities. Uh, how would a period of protest and perhaps even in violence uh, uh, in, in, in our southern neighbor affect the business relationship with the U.S.? Peter, that's, that's the most worrisome aspect of all of this. What, what is abundantly clear is that this wasn't the the blue wave that people have been talking about. It's not a not a democratic blowout. We're looking at a society that is very deeply divided. And it's not just simply that it's that it's split more or less fifty fifty, but that the divisions themselves are very fierce. And uh, in Canada, when we have an election, whether you are on the side that wins or the side that loses, everybody accepts that the results are legitimate. The worry I think that many of us have is that we could find uh, on social media and elsewhere in the United States a commentary that the results were illegitimate, that the election was stolen, that the system had broken down, and that encourages people to take the law into their own hands. That's not in anybody's interest. We uh, we have experience with President Trump, so we know what he means for Canada. Uh, I'm not sure what he means, if what it might mean if he's reelected, but uh, we've had that four years of experience. Uh, you know, look at a bit of a crystal ball, I guess. What what would a Biden presidency mean for Canadian business? How will they view that? On, on the positive side, I, I think we would see fewer sort of capricious trade actions against Canada. We just don't know today where the next one's coming from. And we've seen things like the attack on Canadian aluminum and steel, the threats against the Canadian auto sector. Blueberries could be the next target that, that President Trump looks at. You just don't know what's going to happen when you get up in the morning. Um, so there could be more stability on that front. Um, on the other hand, Canadians tend to think that, that what you have with this polarity in the U.S. is that the Democrats are opposed to whatever it is that the Republicans are doing. And now that the Republicans under President Trump have become very protectionist, the assumption is that somehow uh, the Democrats will be, be more in favor of, of, of free and open trade. That's not the experience. And so we need to watch for things like Buy America policies under, under the Democrats. Uh, we need to look at, at things like Keystone XL, where, where President Trump uh, was in favor of, of KXL proceeding and where uh, Vice President Biden has indicated that he's right. opposed to it. And as a consequence, then, uh, we can't expect this will be simply a reversal of everything that President Trump has been doing. The United States has moved into a very dif different social and political phase than it was in just four years ago. All right. Lots to watch in the days ahead. Uh, Perrin Beatty, always good to get your perspective. Thanks again for uh, providing it today. Thanks, Peter. Glad to be with you. Well, the Prime Minister faced more calls today for an accounting of the government's fiscal situation, including those tens of billions of dollars in pandemic spending. One call for greater transparency came today from the Parliamentary Budget Officer. We'll hear from him in a moment. But first, this exchange from today's question period in the House of Commons. Here's what we don't know. We don't know about the budget because there hasn't been one in a record 18 months. About an economic update, which doesn't yet have a date. There's still no letter of mandate to the Minister of Finance. No bi-weekly updates. The Parliamentary Budget Officer says there's no reports on $80 billion of spending. You know, Napoleon said never ascribe to malice what can be explained by incompetence. So, is it possible that the Prime Minister is not hiding anything? He's just completely lost track of all the spending. <laughs> Honourable Prime Minister, 
Mr. Speaker, from the beginning of this pandemic, we made a very different decision than what the Conservatives would have made, as uh, the member from Carleton keeps highlighting. We made a commitment to Canadians that we would be there for them. We sent out the Canada Emergency Response Benefit almost immediately to millions of Canadians who needed it, who used it to put groceries on the table, to pay for their rents, to support their families at a time of uncertainty and crisis. We had Canadians' backs, and we will continue to have Canadians' backs as long as it takes whatever it takes. I will let the Conservatives continue to try and play politics and explain how they wouldn't have done that for Canadians, but we have and we will continue to. The Parliamentary Budget Officer has issued some strong criticism today of the federal government for its lack of transparency around the hundreds of billions of dollars in pandemic spending that it's pushing out the door. He warns that it makes it more difficult for parliamentarians to perform the critical function of overseeing government spending and holding the government to account. Parliamentary Budget Officer Yves Giroux joins me now. Mr. Giroux, good to see you again. Uh, thanks for taking time to speak with me tonight. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Tell me what specific pandemic spending you, you were looking into as you put together this report. Well, we, we looked at the entirety of pandemic spending, and that includes the CERB and its successors, the Qs, so the wage subsidy, um, the, um, the, um, the other programs for businesses. There are so many acronyms, it's easy to lose track of them. So we were looking at uh, virtually all of the major programs that the government has put in place has replaced and has has um, has uh, put successors to them. For example, uh, the CERB was replaced by the Canada Recovery Benefit. So all these programs we're trying to uh, keep a, a tab on and trying to estimate how okay. much these will cost. And uh, why do you have concerns about the transparency around that spending? Well, we have concerns because while we know when the government announces them, that the government puts estimates out as to their the cost that the government plans on 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 uh, allocating to each of these programs there's little um, follow-up as to whether the spending is progressing as expected and before parliament was prorogued in august the the government provided estimates every two weeks to the finance committee of the house of commons as to the amounts spent to date on these programs but right, and, with then, and that's with prorogation that stopped and, and exactly. it, it, it never started back up? Exactly. So we, we thought that pro with prorogation it would stop as it, as it happened. But when Parliament was reconvened, we expected these uh, information uh, information provisions to, to, be, uh, to resume again. But it hasn't happened. We, so we haven't seen these uh, biweekly updates from the government, uh, which is, was a bit surprising and also disappointing for us because that's a good piece of accountability for the government. And it helps parliamentarians keep, uh, keep close eyes sure. on government spending. Okay. So to be clear... Is there a document, is there a paper trail anywhere that you were able to find that you have seen that details all of the government pandemic measures to date and how much they are costing? Uh, not since uh, early August, which was the last report the government provided to the Finance Committee of the House of Commons. So between August and now, we haven't seen anything. Maybe the government plans on providing that type of information when the Minister of Finance releases her update, which she has promised sometime this fall. And the fall goes until the end of December, so December 21st. So between now and that time, we're hopeful we will see some type of estimate that would provide the information that we haven't seen since early August. Okay. Uh, now, 
so as you, when you were looking into this spending, did you go to finance department officials and say, hey, wh where are these, uh, these updates from every two weeks? Why have they stopped? And if you did, what kind of answer did you get? Um, we, we are in constant communications with the Department of Finance. And, uh, we haven't asked that information, so we, not directly. We, we, didn't get, uh, we didn't get that far. We were hoping that these information, this information would be provided to parliamentarians. In the meantime, we've been quite busy with uh, the provision and the calculation of our own cost estimates of the various programs that have been announced since. And but we haven't uh, we haven't gotten uh, that far, or we haven't asked the government because I, I, I'm not sure we would have gotten any answer. That's wait and see. Okay, um, because what we've heard in in, in different. Um sometimes to different questions is, look, the public servants are so busy trying to get the programs organized, get the money out of the door, that some of this other stuff isn't getting done. So if, if, you know, if, if they're too busy to put it out, is, is that acceptable to you? Well, I, I don't think you can pretend or you can say that you're too busy doing something else when you, to, to, um, that, would not, that would not justify dropping some information or forgetting about the provision of information to parliamentarians on programs that are worth dozens of billions of dollars per year. So um, if you're too busy to do that, what else is it that you're working on? And keeping in mind that there are thousands of public servants in, in this city. So there should be, I think there should be a few public servants who have time to provide information to parliamentarians on the billions and billions of dollars that are spent on a monthly basis, or right. probably on a weekly basis. And I guess you're not happy with the, like, I, we, we have heard suggestions from the new finance minister, Christopher Freeland, that when we do get a, uh, a fiscal update, that uh, some of that costing will be in there. But is that delay acceptable to you? Or should parliamentarians, since they're dealing with the programs now, should they see the numbers now? Well, I think we owe it to parliamentarians and to Canadians to provide information to them as to how much are these programs costing to date. And we we highly suspect that this information exists somewhere. It's just a matter of putting it together and releasing it to parliamentarians and to Canadians. That being said, we understand there's a transition that took place at finance to a new minister, and it, it takes some time for a minister, especially in a portfolio as important as finance, to get accustomed to the various files, and right. considering that she's also the deputy prime minister, um, it, it obviously takes yeah, but let a me, bit of time. Uh, let me suggest that the, the, the people who are putting together uh, the, the cost estimates and the costing every two weeks, the finance minister changed. I'm guessing those people didn't. Uh, they didn't all leave oh. the department and go somewhere else. But, <laughs> look, you also examined the cost of implementing the government's legislation to bring pay equity to federally regulated workforces. How much will that cost? Well, we estimate it will cost about $600 million per year uh, on an ongoing basis. But uh, we had to estimate that using publicly available information because uh, the government was reluctant to give us the, uh, the finer information, the more detailed information that would have been useful to, to do a, a thorough estimate on that or a more refined estimate. Right. So are, 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 you, are you suggesting that you're, you're starting to get blocked in some of these uh, studies you're trying to do from, by government officials? Well, it's one instance, so I, I, one point, one data point is not uh, indicative of a trend. And what, what Treasury Board, sorry, Treasury Board Secretariat officials have told us is that that information, uh, the information we, we sought initially is uh, cabinet confidence. So that's why they couldn't provide it to us. 
So we circumvented that by using publicly available information. We don't know exactly how different the uh, the estimate would have been using the TBS data that is supposedly a cabinet confidence, um, but uh, we haven't seen significant pushback from the government as to the, the amount that we came up with in our report. So that suggests the cost is probably um, broadly in line with what the government's own. Yeah. All right. Uh, Parliament's Budget Officer, Yves Giroux, always good to talk to you. Thanks for your time again today. Pleasure. That is all the time we have for this edition of Primetime Politics. From all of us here at CPAC, thanks again for watching, and I will see you next time.